0: This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines, expertly curated for you. Go to WineAccess.com
1: for more info. This week on Meetin 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade.
2: Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties.
0: There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free.
1: Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you
2: get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to someone who I admire, who inspires me in my everyday life. And today, my guest is V. Spear. We met when we were doing a panel together for a Joanna James movie, A Fine Line, and I just, I fell in love. That doesn't happen to me that often. And I really wanted to share the love I have for this person with all of you listeners. V, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Dana. Great to be here. So, you have had quite the career in the hospitality industry. I love all parts of it everything from a dishwasher to the director of impact for the James Beard Foundation. And your current position as executive director of Everything Food, you have absolutely run the gamut. But I I think one of the things that I found even more interesting just learning more about you is how, from the very, very beginning of your life, like life as a little kid, you have been thinking about the way that you can impact others and improve lives, and you've really taken on some battles and I guess the first battle that I wanted to talk about was going way, way back, and it's the Battle of the uniform
1: yes, the Catholic school uniform, of course so. Growing up as the queer child that I would not realize I was until I was about 16, 17 years old, I knew that there were things that I didn't think were fair and I didn't think made sense. And one of them was skirts are for girls and pants are for boys and you have to wear this to be educated or you have to wear this to be seen as dressed appropriately. And that was really... My first foray into social justice, I guess you would call it, is fighting for the ability to wear pants, which was very quickly after I won that battle, followed by the ability to play on the boys' baseball team and not on the girls' softball team. And I know myself well now, and looking back, I'm like, okay, you were a little gender bender even back then. I mean, I think kids know intrinsically who we want to be when we grow up. We just don't know how to get there.
2: When I think about you fighting for the right for pants. I think about what would have that had been like with your friends and what had what been like for your parents? I mean, were they thinking, oh my gosh, my kid is incredible, or were they like a little concerned?
1: No, they definitely didn't think it was incredible. I think they thought it was maybe unnecessary and they thought it was maybe extra, but that would come to be a status quo for how I was as a kid. I think overall, I learned young that having a sound argument for something and making it seem easy for other people was gonna be the best way to make it through life as unscathed as possible. So in my arguments, even as a kid negotiating with my parents or teachers or nuns, whoever it might be, the idea was always like, okay, I understand why this exists. I respect it. I'm going to choose differently and it won't cause any additional work or thought for you. And we're just going to move forward like that. And if you just made it very... Matter of fact, it made it harder to argue with. And that argument style is something I learned from my grandma Kelly, who was very much this way. The woman got her way all the time.
2: I want to hear about your grandmothers because you have a couple of extraordinary grandmothers who seem to have had an influence, this being one of them. What can you tell us about them? so
1: grandma kelly talked like a vaudeville drag queen my whole life she had that like transatlantic accent you know where everything was like real jazzy and vaudevilly and i just loved her i just adored her so so much and she had a difficult life you know she got married she had my mom and her two sisters and her husband passed away when my mom was just seven years old And she would go on to, you know, be the original G when it came to being a single mom and working two jobs and trying to just, like, make things feel really normal for people and really special. And... I think the sort of hard life that she had growing up and, you know, losing her husband young, shaped her into someone that I consider like an excellent listener, a person who could go as slow or fast as you needed them to, and who just really could find joy in in little things, in just little parts of the day, and could also do really hard things, and so... I really admired the way that she navigated the world. And she was like my best friend. I, ta- I talked to her every single day, all the way up until the day she passed away, which was about five years ago. I'd call her every day at 5.30, and we'd talk all the tea on what was happening in the restaurant world and in New York City, and she just was always so interested. And I feel very lucky to have had her in my life.
2: When you talk about her ability to listen, it makes me think of one of your superpowers, which is listening. And it's also a theme that comes up when you talk about people who inspire you. What can you tell me about what listening means to you and how you developed that particular muscle?
1: So I wasn't always a good listener. For me personally, becoming a good listener started with being a really good storyteller. And being a storyteller started with building the sort of mask that some queer folks have to build throughout your childhood and maybe young adulthood as to what it is that you're willing to put forward, what it is that you're willing to show. And I think as you are protecting the parts of yourself you're not comfortable with, and as you're really evangelizing the parts of your story that you are comfortable with, you pick up early on how to read other people's reactions and how to gain a favorable reaction from folks. You know, you learn which parts of the story they're comfortable with and what they like. And you can do that For so long until you start to kind of lose who you are in the story. And that is something that happened to me where I got to a point where I was like the v Spear show. Like when I would be at work or I would be out, I would be so protective of who I was truly on the inside that it was this very curated version of myself that I was willing to share. And it's exhausting. It really is exhausting. And then as I grew up and had some more life experience and gained some more confidence, I had to truly change the way I listened to people and came to realize that it was okay for them to get to know you as a flawed person and as a truly honest person and even as a tired person. And you didn't have to be so masked all the time. And I think that that's really where I turned the corner on being a better friend, being a better partner, and overall being a better listener
2: for sure. I'm just going to trip back to the childhood you because there's some of these stories that relate to being masked not really figuring out exactly you know who you are one of the stories that I found poignant that I'd heard was the story about you going to your prom
1: yeah so as I would be as an adult I tried a little bit of everything and part of the mass part of my childhood part of the just the things that I was interested in I grew up in a very very small town in Connecticut five square miles and it was mostly football fields and churches and most of the people who grew up there, you know, their parents had grown up there, their grandparents had grown up there. It's this place in Connecticut that's called the Valley. Anybody who's ever been to or from the Valley knows exactly what I'm talking about. Growing up there, you have a lot of the same. You know, everyone's pretty socioeconomically even. Everyone's parents probably went to high school with each other, grandparents too. Everyone's dad works its course gear, craft. Everyone's mom is a teacher or a nurse, like very much like that. So paint that world for yourself. So I played on the boys' baseball team, as I mentioned, and then I would join the softball team in high school. I tried dancing school. I was in the theater club. I did a lot of extracurricular activities, kept busy. And the one thing that I absolutely loved more than anything was cheerleading, which is traditionally high femme activity. But for me, it was like performance, and my school didn't have... The first high school I went to didn't have a theater club. So I was like, okay, well this is it. This is my showtime. And so I was a UC All-Star cheerleader. If you were to just see me in the world, you'd be like, okay, well this person presents very traditionally female, has a boyfriend, the whole thing. But you know, he was a he was an altar boy, so we could barely even hold hands, which really works out. So I was living this world and I was feeling pretty safe about it, and I was almost convincing myself that this was going to work out, that this was going to be an okay thing, I could keep living like this, but I never really, it's not that I was attracted to women, even young, it was that I wasn't really attracted to men or boys, I didn't really, like, get it, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm a late bloomer, I don't know, until girls liked me. So this is how my queer journey begins. Girls who were more comfortable with themselves or had more experience in understanding what gay was had like a crush on me, Would was like very clear about this. And then I started to think like, oh, well, maybe like that's what I want to do. Maybe that's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe I should try that. And I hadn't even really had any experience whatsoever at all, other than my very best friend in the whole world, Tom Simonetti, uh, who's still my best friend to this day, had come out that summer and he was afraid that he would be alone. And I was like, well, I'll be gay with you. What do we have to do? And this is really how it started. And so then I was like, okay, I'm gay. And I was really popular and I thought it was going to be an okay thing. And it just, it was not. So even though I didn't have a girlfriend, I didn't have any experience really, I was like gay, in theory, I really didn't know what it was going to be yet at all. And I went to the prom and my mom got phone calls the entire night from this girl that I don't know who she is saying everything you could possibly think of that was bad. So I technically got outed by a stranger, which is a girl I went to school with, I guess, calling my mom and saying like, your daughter's a dyke and like your daughter's gay and like all this terrible, terrible stuff, right? Not terrible to be those things, but terrible to be outed that way. I mean, it was Very scary, especially the mystery of like, who's calling your mom? I mean, it was very threatening. So my parents did not take it well. My dad did. My mom did not. And it would be years before she would take it well. And so I kind of got scared back into the closet for a while. And I lived this double life of like trying to think of what I wanted to explore as the adult that I would be and trying to make peace with the fact that I still had like two years of childhood I had to
2: survive. And so that was that. And your mother was sort of surprisingly unsupportive. To what do you attribute that?
1: It's hard to really speak for her in some ways. And sometimes I try to, like, in my mind, tell myself a story that's kinder than maybe it was. But in my version of why this happened and why she chose to be unkind or or unaccepting at this point, it is... um I just don't think she knew really what my life would be like. And I think she was afraid. And that's what she says. She had a friend that had actually died of AIDS in San Francisco at the height of the AIDS crisis in the early nineties. And I think she was afraid that if you were gay, you were going to get AIDS and die a terrible death alone. And that's what she said to me. And so obviously we know much better now and she herself knows much better now, but at that time, you know, it was like 1998, it wasn't that far off from the height of the worst. And so... To her, she thought that she could, and the Catholic Church told her this, you could, you could fix this. This was a fixable problem. And so that was it. Send them to camp. And I did go to Catholic Family Services. I did not go to what you see on TV. But it, it was a program through the church that essentially really wanted to hear you out and it was the start of that like love the sinner, hate the sin situation. So you you go and you try to learn, you know, that what you're doing is probably not what you want to do. The dangers of it, the fact that you could change it if you want to, and like, you know, the f- norms of society exist in this way. And if you just like try harder, you cannot be gay. They almost treat it as if akin to like what I imagine drug rehab would be like. Like, you made this mis- mistake, you've made this problem, you've gone too far down this path, but you can come back and you can tell other people about how you've come back from it. And of course it didn't work, but they sure did try.
2: I find it so upsetting just to, just to hear that. I mean, just to like put myself in the, your place at that time and hearing it now, it's just, it's so upsetting. It
1: was. It was very lonely. I would describe it as a lonely situation and... This is again where my grandmothers come back into the picture because they were dancers back in their day and they were jazz gals and whatnot. And so my grandmother very much like did not see the problem with it that my mother feared and she was unconditional love. And so I'm, again, very grateful that I had that because I think for kids who don't have that or even, you know, people who come out later in life, it's knowing that you're loved unconditionally is so important, whether that comes from a family member or from a friend or from a partner. Um, Without that, you know, that's why you see kids, if you ask queer children what do you want to be when you're 30, they're like, I don't know, because you just can't imagine living that long. You can't imagine... Making it past twenty three, like what would that be like?
2: And putting up with the pain for that long and also I mean what you what you read and see in, in the media is so grim between suicide and being attacked. And I've experienced myself where younger friends have said, like, I just don't see it. Like I'm not gonna make it to thirty, so yeah. It's
1: a scary thing. And and the thing is, it's alive to yourself that you're not going to make it, that you're going to be ostracized, that you're, that you're never going to find love, that you're never going to be good enough, that somehow you'll be less. It is hard. And there are challenges to being gay, undeniably. And trans women and trans men feel it the most, I think, in my experience, at least in my walk, I found they have an extremely difficult time. They are a victim more frequently than either people who can pass or folks who aren't as visibly different from what the world considers it should be. But there is such a wide community and there is so much love. And that is the thing that I'm most passionate about now is showing queer kids that are confused or whatever situation you're in is like, you don't have to just make it to 18. You're gonna make it to 40. You're gonna make it to 50. You're gonna fall in love. You're going to have a job. You're going to be seen for who you are. And that might not be something that you're getting at home, you know, right now, but if you could just hold on and stay true to yourself, like you will find your chosen family.
2: And I think that's also something to remember that that we create our own universes where everybody gets to sparkle and be loved and appreciated. Well, speaking of sparkle, it makes me, I mean, it's an awkward transition, but I'm going to take it anyway, to college theater because you had done some theater and you're like that great cheerleader. And then you did theater in high school. But I'd love to hear about doing theater in college and what that was like. So
1: growing up as a as a gay kid in Connecticut, or really and I'm sure in many parts of the world, that if I could get to New York City, I knew I was gonna be safe. I just knew it. I was like, all I have to do is get to New York City, and I'll be so uninteresting <laughs> compared to the rest of the people there that I'll no one will ever bother me again. Like I'll just run middle of the pack and that'll be great. And so my one and singular goal, my whole life, was to get to New York City, and I sure did. So I went to school at Wagner College, which has one of the most awarded musical theater programs in the nation. And I got a really great scholarship, which was excellent. And that was where I really started to figure out who I was and how to better mask even. So I had this experience where... While I was in ballet at seven in the morning with Rusty Curcio, I was in my pink tights and my black leotard, and when I was, you know, doing vagina monologues at the coffee house later that evening, I was my full self. And so it really expanded what my wingspan as a person was going to theater school, and especially at Wagner as a small school. One thing that was challenging in this circumstance college, especially theater school, prepares you for what it's going to be like when you go out to audition in the real world. And in the real world in 2000, there wasn't gender neutral and there wasn't gender reverse casting. So while later in life, I would go on to play every bad boy in the Bible and, and have a wonderful time as a tenor. At this point, I was an alto woman auditioning for shows and very much held to that. And so that was difficult. It was difficult to know that you were like coming into your own and and creating your own person, but that you were also there on a scholarship to be a woman in theater traditionally. And that was hard, but it was really
2: incredible. Well, you actually got on the road and did some performance. And again, in the, I didn't know that you auditioned and toured with Dolly Parton. Tell me about that. So like all things in
1: life, sometimes things just happen to you and you just have to say yes to them. So the Dolly Parton audition came about because it was my birthday. I was in New York City and my friend Tom, who I mentioned earlier, had to work. And so I came into the city early and he's like, why don't you go to a couple auditions? And at this time I was working like in some restaurants. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I'd just gotten out of school. And anybody who lives in New York knows that there'd be auditions for a bunch of things, non-equity. And um, this particular day it was between... (laughs) Dollywood, the Ringling Brothers Circus or the Big Apple Circus. There was callbacks for rent. There was something else, something else, something else. So anyway, I went up there and I had intended to audition for a regional production of a musical that I can't remember now, but it it was something just normal. And I knocked on the door and signed up and I, I went through one of these doors that I thought was gonna be the music open call. And it wasn't, it was the Dolly Parton callbacks for her Backwoods Barbie doll mini tour and Christmas in the Smokies. So at the time I had a half black, half white mohawk and a lip ring because it was a time it was, you were trying to look edgy at this time. You know, they were doing some more exploratory theater and performance art. And so I was like, I'm going to be a part of that world. And she was like, hello. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm in definitely the wrong place, 100%. I'm so sorry. And um, she was like, well, you interrupted me. You know, you owe me a song. And I was like, okay, well, I sang Bobby McGee from the bottom of my soul. And I thought it was just for fun, right? And so it was fun. And then I got done. And I was like, okay, thanks. Bye. And I'm just thinking, like, this gonna be one of those New York moments, you know, where you're just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I go out in the hall. And Claire came up to me and was like, how'd you like leave to leave on Tuesday? And I was like huh? And she's like, how'd you like to leave on Tuesday? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And I'm like in the back of my mind running through all the ways in which I am like not the right person for this in any way. I'm like, I am gay. I have a mohawk and a lip ring. Like, there's no way. I don't even know country music. So she's like, no, no, no. It's like a Christmas show. It's going to be okay. It's not like country country. It's Dolly country Christmas show. I'm like, okay, no problem. So they told me where they're going to pay me. And I was like, cool, I will be there on Tuesday. And then I went down to Tennessee and we trained in Pigeon Forge for a while. This is when I learned about the great state of Tennessee and what a dry county is. And that was a shacker. And then we did a show for, it was about five months and it was really fun. And I had a great time and she is just as lovely as you could ever hope for her to be in the history of the world. I had at the time, go back with me, you know, to the early 2000s, I had to sign a morality contract, which a lot of places have a morality clause, especially Anything to do with like country, theme park, kids, anything like that. And the contract basically said, you know, you can't drink, can't smoke, you can't swear, and you can't be gay. And I was like, well, I am in the wrong place. And we were talking about the contract and they were like, do you have a boyfriend? I'm like, no. And they're like, do you have a girlfriend? I was like, you know that I cannot answer that. And it got back to Dolly that there was this morality clause in there that basically said that folks, they had to be acting like what they called Christian at the time. And so it basically meant being gay was very frowned upon. And she had it taken out because she was like, you got to be kidding me. Like all my fans are gay. Like I love the gay community. Like I absolutely, I would never have this in there. And so it got taken out which was pretty great.
2: I'm just taking it back full circle here. We've got pants. We've got baseball for girls. And you've quashed the morality clause for Dolly Parton. I mean, that's three things before you were even 30. And it was all just because of the same thing.
1: Like, it doesn't make sense to hold people to things that diminish their joy. And it's hard to argue that. It's hard to argue why You can't love somebody and sing Christmas carols seven times a day in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Like, it doesn't make sense.
2: I guess one of the things I'm curious about is where you put the emotion during those arguments. You know, I think that one of the reasons that some people are perhaps less convincing than they want to be in an argument is they're very emotionally invested in the outcome, as I'm sure you were in each of these cases. And they find that hard to put aside. And there's so much anger at being sort of mistreated or at injustice and what's your take on where you put the anger or when in your soul you just feel that what you're dealing with is unfair and unjust and you can't get beyond that like how do you get beyond that so at the
1: time i didn't think that i had a lot of self-doubt i had a lot of you don't deserve anything better and this is just how it is and you're lucky to even like breathe air in this space and don't get too far ahead of yourself on what you do and don't deserve and what does not doesn't make you angry. I was used to being very accommodating to other people's feelings. It wasn't even like pushing down my feelings. It was the complete absence of feelings because I just hadn't really learned how to develop them for myself truly yet. Like in some cases I would say, okay, so you're showing up in the world in a certain way and you're having this feeling that you're lucky to even be there. There were some things that I made non-negotiables that was like one thing, right? So it wasn't that I couldn't be my total self or express my gender identity the way that I wanted to fully as a child. It was that I get to wear pants that felt like, okay, I'll go that far. And because I'm only asking for that one thing, then it'll happen. And because I'm going to give up all these other things or because it's going to be the easiest thing to have everyone feel like they got what they needed, even though I was getting like just the smallest version of what I needed. So I think that played a role for a long time is even with the morality clause. I mean, I didn't come out and say like, fight for it. I was just like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And it hurts. But I mean, it is what it is. I mean, what did I expect? And they were like, well, you should expect more. And I think if I were to say the first 32 years of my life was people telling me that I should expect more and I deserved more. And then the last eight years has really been me being like, oh, no, I absolutely deserve more. I absolutely this doesn't make sense. Or I'm willing to put myself on the line for myself, for my community, for other people. But that came way later.
2: That seems like a very specific time frame what happened at 32 so
1: actually at 33 in my family we have this thing called your jesus year now i don't know if anyone else is catholic that's listening or christian but you know jesus found 33 hard as well so it's it's a transformational year it's a very difficult year so when I was 33, I was going into my Jesus year, as we call it. And when you're 33, something changes in you. You like actually become an adult. You maybe have more financial freedom than you've ever had in your life. You probably are more secure in your career than you've been. You kind of think you know yourself. You've like separated from who you were as a child and who you were in your 20s to like who you're really kind of gonna be right now. So in my Jesus year, I was working at a very high end caterer. So. To take full circle kind of my whole theater career up to where I got at 33, I found that performing was just as exciting as waiting tables or being in the restaurant industry because every day was like a show and it, the energy was the same and you made a lot more money. So I was like, I'm gonna switch over and I'm gonna do restaurant work because this is like doing a show. It's having the life, but it's also getting paid and you don't have to audition and I'm here for that. So then I auditioned for the role of hostess, for the role of server, bartender, and line cook. And I, I'm proud to say I've gotten all those gigs and uh, you know, it's it's been a wonderful time. So I had auditioned for the role of caterer at this point, And I was working at this very high-end caterer in um, Washington, DC. Uh, it was called Design Cuisine. It was by Bill Homan, who's considered, like, the godfather of modern catering. He's an incredible trendsetter. He knows all of the ladies of Georgetown. He's just... He's still alive. I'm talking about him. Like he said, he's still very much alive and probably listening. And, like, hi, Bill. So he... He really taught me everything I knew about how to put on a good party and how to, you know, really elevate somebody's experience in these like major things that you see, like a gala or a social gathering. And in DC, that's where all the power in food is, is in catering. And so I was working for him and I was learning a ton and I really thought this was going to be the path I was on. And I'm like, my Jesus here is going pretty good, like not so bad, learning new things, working for this cool job. So I got a call one day and uh, as I mentioned previously, I'm the oldest of three and I got a call saying... That my brother had passed away. And I was the middle of my day. And I was like, oh, and like anyone who gets a call like this uh, about their 25 year old brother, I finished my work day. I was like, oh, thank you so much for calling, hung up, finished writing out my, you know, catering reports for the day, did a walkthrough, a venue. And at the end of that day, this woman that I work with, Ricky Nichetta, who is the current social secretary of the United States, said to me, she's like, are you okay? Something happened to you? And I'm like, yes, I got this very strange call today. And they told me that my brother passed away. And she was like, okay. And she could tell that I was in shock. And I wasn't like handling it so well, because I was just completely dissociated. And so she was like, all right, well, how about this? Why don't you give me all of your file folders for all of your parties for the next week? Why don't you let me take you home? And I'm gonna hold your hand through this. And it was the first time in my life that I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to need help. And Ricky was there for me. And that is that's the Jesus year moment that changed how I saw really how I wanted to show up in the world.
2: I mean, what an overwhelming moment. And I'm so sorry. The death of a sibling is so unusual at a young age. You know,
1: someday you think, oh my God, my parents might die and I'll feel terrible about that. And there's something you think about that are your grandparents. And as a parent, unfortunately, you know, you have moments where you're like, oh my God, you know, if something ever happened to my child, the thing you never think about is what if something happens to someone my age, who's my sibling. It's just, it doesn't make sense. It disrupts the complete order of the way that the world is supposed to go. And sometimes you get notice, and sometimes you don't. In my case, I didn't have notice. And it it really, at the time, I did not see how this was going to work out, how I was going to survive this. But now I'm six years later and it's like, okay there are certain lessons that you learn from such an unusual experience, despite the fact that it's like very sad or, you know, how that affected my family. That dissociation and that first time that I had to accept help is really core to how I show up in the world today. So when something like this happens to you, you have a moment where you're really resetting who you are as a person. And whether it's your choice or not, things are going to be different.
2: I think that The connection that you're making, this pivot that happened actually from your almost not taking up space to taking control. It's incredible that this traumatic death is the thing that allowed you to say, like, I deserve more.
1: Yeah, I just wasn't afraid anymore of anything. What was going to happen, you know? It was like, The most unprepared, crazy thing I could ever think of in the whole world had happened to me. And there's some freedom, as odd as this is going to sound, there was some freedom in knowing that, like, I could do hard things now. I could ask for what I wanted. I could be unafraid. I could do a lot of things that I was so timid about before because I had survived this thing that was completely out of the blue, nothing I could prepare for, nothing I could control, nothing I could change. And it really freed me from a lot of fear.
2: It also sounds like being able to accept help accelerated your ability to be more of who you are. Sounds like that was the gateway to saying, okay, not only am I going to overcome the fear, but I'm going to accept more people. I mean, I imagine like love falls into your life more easily that way too, right? If you're so protected and you're like, it's all good. It's all good. Like, it's that's not when love comes in the window.
1: Yes, I definitely, through this experience and through this first time of accepting help, saw, one, what it does for a person when you let them help you. I loved being a helper. I never thought that I would love being helped. And there is something really empowering to allowing someone to help you that helps grow the relationship you have with that person who got in the weeds with you. And we understand that from the kitchen. I didn't understand it from an emotional myself perspective. And it really is the moment that I can say I went from being hyper-vigilant about how people saw me to being hyper-present in how I showed up for people. I was able to see them. I was able to slow down and listen. I was able to just hear what they were needing and what they were saying and be hyper-present in my experience with people, as opposed to thinking about how I needed to respond to something, or what I needed to guard, or what I needed to say to remain, you know, quote, perfect.
2: Do you think any of that comes from, like, a subliminal, perhaps, concern that had you paid more attention, like, you would have seen this traumatic event coming? Yeah, there's some of that. You know,
1: like, any time a trauma comes into someone's life, you look back and you're like, how could I have done things differently? How could I fix it? How could I have saved him? How could I have done a number of things? And there's some part of that that I think about in the way that I've changed how I've listened and I've changed how I show up and I've changed how I see people and I've changed what I expect from people. And I do expect more. I definitely do. I think the thing that I learned is that people actually want to be challenged in friendships. They want to be in the hard conversation with you. They want to go deeper with you. Folks may appreciate a shallow, fun, good time the show for a period of time, but they will much more appreciate and they will much more grow and they will much more you know, have success in themselves and in their journey with you if you allow them to see you deeper. And if you understand how to see them deeper, I think I really only knew how to see people on the surface. And there was some something that folks liked about that, that I wouldn't see past their guards, I would just be really present in what they wanted to show. And now I find that folks are looking for that they're looking for a deeper human connection, they're looking to be seen beyond the mask that they have to wear. And it's an incredible change that I'm very grateful
2: for. I think that's really interesting. And I think that That feels particularly apropos right now when we are each more alone than before and the ability to have those sort of transformative conversations are a little bit challenged because it depends like who you're living with, spending your time with, who's in your bubble, you know, what access you have to to others and so I think that it's a time that's very easy to be lonely and it's easy to feel disconnected yeah
1: and there's a change in the way that your heart beats when you're going through a trauma like we are right now with COVID and with the dissemination of the restaurant industry it's the death of a dream which is something that I think we need more words around because we're used to I mean I've called you and been like how you doing Dana oh I'm good how are you doing oh I'm good and it's like I'm not good (laughs) like we're not good you know but what do you say you're used to the habit of saying I'm good And I think it's important for folks to say, you know, I'm not good. One of the people that I love talking to the most is Adrienne Lipscomb, who is a chef out in Wisconsin. Because if you ask her how you doing, she's like, ooh, today got me, girl, today got me. And I love that because then we can have a conversation. I am freed up from having to feel like I can't be honest about the feelings I'm having. And she's created space to talk about the truth of what she's having. And that's how we make each other not feel alone. We're honest about the fact that this is an extremely unusual time that no one prepared for, that we're dissociating, that we are losing touch with how to connect as humans that we need to connect as humans face-to-face. And in lieu of that, saying, I'm good, is doing more damage.
2: I've heard you talk about the grief that we're experiencing right now in the restaurant industry, and I think that that's so true. There's a collective sense of grief at, at what we've lost, but as you say, not exactly the words for it. And there's a lot of anger and disbelief. What are your thoughts on the grief at the moment? If you've never experienced really big grief, I can imagine it's difficult
1: right now to put into words what's happening. But we have a couple of things happening. We have the death of a dream for a lot of folks of where they were in their career, where they were in their life, where they saw themselves going, being put at a complete standstill. And that's one version of grief that we need to deal with. The fact that. The entirety of this year, in many ways, has been lost to stillness. And then you have the next stage of grief, which is denial, which is oftentimes very weighing on our own mental abilities. I know when I see people saying, I'm not going to wear a mask, I'm like, oh, that hurts me because I see it as like perpetuating this lockdown situation or the lack of ability to handle the virus. You get into blaming folks blaming the city is shutting us down versus the guest doesn't understand versus my farmer can't harvest right now because they can't have people in the field. Like this blaming thing that goes on where people are seeking so hard for what the answer is so that they can choose differently and have a solution. You have anger, people who feel angry that this happened to them, they didn't deserve it. Nobody can do anything right per se right now. And I think if we don't put the umbrella over it that this is all grief. Then we can start to break down the connections we have with people and displace some of that anger and some of those emotions that can really just be attributed to this umbrella. This unusual thing happens to me. It is sad. It is scary. It is concerning. It has forever changed the way that my heart beats and I show up in the world and I've never had this happen to me. And so how do I navigate through it? And I really do think it's, it's embracing the stillness, which again, if you've not had to embrace stillness in your past, I I promise you it works. Hold yourself still. Allow yourself to have the feelings that you're having because they're just going to keep coming up and coming up and coming up if we don't just sit with them for a minute and allow them to float up, float away, acknowledge them, move forward from them. Otherwise, we're just carrying them on our back forever. And that's hard. That's much harder.
2: I think that's really wise, V, that you know we really need to feel our feelings right now even if they make us feel kind of crappy because otherwise we're going to have them come up later and sort of knock us sideways and we won't know what hit us so with that cheerful thought we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll talk about some of your extraordinary career stay with us <laughs>
0: Hi, this is Sam Ruby from The Grape Nation. You know my show is all about enlightening, inspiring, and motivating you guys to drink and try more wine. I want to tell you about a great way to discover and drink the best wine, Wine Access. Whether you're a neophyte or an expert, Wine Access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy the wines you like. Their team tastes over 20,000 selections per year and only curates the finest wines, exceeding expectations and over-delivering on price. Through the years, Wine Access has cultivated relationships with under-the-radar winemakers, as well as the most iconic producers. Think Opus One, Dana, Larkmead, Silver Oak, just to name a few. Discover your new favorite bottle with Wine Access. They have an exclusive offer available for Heritage Radio Network and Grape Nation listeners, 20% off your first order. Just go to WineAccess.com slash Grape Nation and the discount will be applied at checkout. That's WineAccess.com slash Grape Nation. Wine Access also has a great wine club. Let them do all the work so you can discover your new favorite bottles. Go to WineAccess.com slash GrapeNation and receive 20% off your first order. That's WineAccess.com slash GrapeNation. Check them out now.
2: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is V. Spear. V. You have had the most incredible career, and I want to talk a little bit now about what you're doing. I want to hear about everything food, I want to hear about Harvest Rx, and how do you get these great jobs? One of the things that I have
1: been able to do in my life is to know that I don't know something. I think sometimes being dumb in a situation makes you a really good strategist. Like if you really don't know what's going on in a really huge problem, sometimes it's easier to see the exit than the folks who know every possible outcome. And that's how I got into what I'm working on now. So at the time when I was working at the cater, I had achieved a level of success. I had gone through this great trauma I had come to realize that high-end catering, in-person service, all of that kind of stuff wasn't really going to be my heart's mission for the next while. I still had great appreciation for what that was, but I wanted to do something in which I felt more actually physically grounded, like physically rooted. So I came across um, this opportunity with a brand new company at the time. It was called Hungry Harvest, and their mission was to recover food that couldn't be sold to retail because it was too big, too small, too ugly and sell it to folks at a 30% discount, essentially trying to put more produce back into the food sphere and help farmers get a higher return for their total crop value. And I was like, this is something I can do physically taking something from the ground, right? And then physically handing it to somebody that it's going to help. And that this job was my trauma recovery from this experience I had through my brother's passing. And as we got into this and you get to see more of the struggle that people have and more of the ways that food security is truly the root and the foundation of a successful society, I started to look at even bigger problems. And throughout my childhood, I was not necessarily food insecure, but I was definitely not the foodie, food understanding person that I am now. And, you know, you ate what you got and that's all we had. And I, I wanted it to be something where we could provide not just food to families, but education. So you like apples, maybe you would like jicama. So you like um, sweet potatoes, maybe you would like cauliflower rice. I mean, there was all different ways that we could expand people's palate at the absolute basics of food to build them a broader food pyramid and make your life a little bit more exciting and try new things. Even if you were maybe on the lower income side or more on the food insecure side, I'd never wanted someone to feel like you just get what you get and too bad. I wanted them to feel like you get a special prize and this is awesome and you are truly being a part of a community and not charityed at. You are being, you know, seen for what you actually need and provided. So through that process of building out the original Hungry Harvest, I was thinking back on my grandmother, the vaudeville drag queen, and she went into this nursing home in Connecticut, very, very nice nursing home in her later years. And one of the biggest complaints she had was they would issue a menu and then she would call me or my dad or my brother or whoever and be like, yeah, I'm not going to believe what they got on this menu. And I was like, grandma, what is it? She's like, they're trying to give me a hot dog. I've got sugar. And I'm, I'm like, okay, well, you definitely can't have that. <laughs> like... She's like, what the hell is a tomatillo? I'm like, I don't know, grandma. Like, my poor little Albanian grandma is, like, not sure what its tamale is. Like, she has no idea what any of this food is. And it's all out of a box, mostly. It's mostly frozen. It's a lot of bad stuff. And it's sodium-laden, sugar-laden, not good. She didn't like the way it tasted. It always came cold. She had a lot of complaints about it. And this was in the best-case scenario for elder folks. And so I thought, if this is happening to my grandma, this is probably happening to other people's grandmas and so i wrote a program called harvest rx that aimed to deliver fresh produce things that could be eaten raw or microwaved that were easy to handle you know by older folks or chronically ill folks and i convinced the hospital to pay for it because the quality of life that somebody has and the nutrition that they can build through the food that they're eating will directly, I thought, have an impact on how much money it costs the hospital to treat them.
2: It also could affect their just general sense of self and happiness. So it seems like you win on both scores there.
1: Yeah, and they have an activity and you get excited to look forward to it, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ups to getting mail, especially when you're in a nursing home or you're in a situation where you're not getting a lot of good news in the mail. So we built this program out. It was immediately adopted by the Washington Adventist Hospital, which was our first customer, which was great. It then expanded into MedStar, St. Agnes, lots of hospitals in the Baltimore and D.C. area, and it was a tremendous, tremendous success. And it was something that I would then go on to like be interviewed a few times. i like, how did you come up with this? Are you a food scientist? I'm like, no, I have a mouthy grandma and this is what I thought she wanted. And so I, I think it's something to think about. Like you don't have to be the most smartest in a particular area that has a big issue to be the person who's going to come up with the solution. I'm just
2: interested in, because I think right now people are looking to change careers and there's so many impediments to that. I mean, there's so much like, I don't know how, or I never have, or why would anyone hire me, or I'm lost. And I'm just curious because that transition that you're describing between jobs seems so dramatic. How did you even know that that might be a good job for you? Or how did you open your mind to that? possibility or even find it
1: so i i found it literally on the internet and i do think that i i mean i grew up catholic but i believe like the universe will provide things to you if you are open to seeing them and i don't think that means like just be lazy and do nothing and the universe will provide i think it means like when you broaden your horizons and think that anything could be possible you might find something that you didn't know was there and that's what happened with hungry harvest so i had left my job at the caterer i had taken a little bit of time off to heal and I was like, I want to do something in food, but I'm not really want to be a farmer, but I don't want to be in a restaurant. What can I do to help people? And so I literally like Googled on LinkedIn, like helping people with food. And this came up on the jobs board, like enough keywords were hit. And I remember going to Baltimore. I got in a car accident on my way to my interview and I had made them carrot cardamom soup because Of course, you bring a gift when you're going anywhere. And um, so I had convinced the tow truck guy. I was really close to where the interview was. And I was like, listen, can you just drop me off here at city garage quick i just have to run in i want to apologize tell them obviously i've been in a car accident it was it was it did total the car but i didn't get hurt if that makes sense i was like i just want to run in quick give them this and then tell them i'm sorry i'll have to reschedule the interview obviously you know whatever and the guy was like yeah no problem and so this tow truck guy with my brother's bmw i was driving imagine like my horror like again so i get to city garage and i go in and i'm like hi evan it's so nice to meet with you i'm so sorry i'm not gonna be able to continue my interview today i've been in a car accident but i wanted to bring you this soup and tell thank you so much for your time and I'll give you a call to reschedule and he hired me he was like you're what And I'm like, yeah, see that car up there? That's my car. I was just in a car accident and I I need to go back to DC. And obviously I have a lot to handle today and I'm not in a place to really like talk, but I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate your time. You know, I'll be in touch. And it was for sales within Hungry Harvest initially. And he was like, okay, so hold on. You made me soup. You convinced a tow truck driver to bring you here. You're holding your patience enough right now with watching your car be crashed up on this thing to talk to me. And okay. Yeah. And you get the job. Like, that's it. Definitely, definitely don't recommend going about it that way, but that's it worked for me. So that, that was the first that was how I got in. And when I got into Hungry Harvest, we just were and continue to be a really tight-knit group of folks who believe that food justice is a business problem, not a charity problem exclusively, and that there are breakdowns in the supply chain and in the way we treat people and treat food that need to be repaired. And that requires building a new supply chain in some cases. And so that's really what we aimed to do there. And Harvester X being such a great success, I had gained the attention of the James Beard Foundation and their impact programs. And I had been an educator for them on food waste, building food systems, how chefs could raise their boys to advocate on behalf of the farm bill. It was just sort of a part of that squirrel. And that is how I ended up getting my job at James Beard Foundation as well. They wanted to bring somebody into the impact department that understood the food system, I obviously understood it from multiple areas, and who would want to build out the women's leadership and LGBTQ inclusion piece, and obviously had great experience in that as well. And so that's how I ended up at the James Beard Foundation, and was there for a year and did a lot of work I'm really very proud of. Obviously, COVID affected Beard Foundation, just as well as all restaurants and people in the industry, and they've had to make some significant strategic decisions to eliminate impact programming, um, to try and just hold on as long as they can to what's next for them. I'm not sure. I think they're still figuring it out too. But when that came to a close, I had this opportunity again to decide what is it I really truly need to be doing right now. What can I do to show up in the world in the way that I want? And so I was approached by Monte Carlo, who's a chef and friend. I was doing work for Fab Conference, which of course, Dina is a Fab Conference moderator as well. But as this went on, Monty uh, reached out to me and was like, I am a co-founder of this group called Everything Food, and we are looking for an opportunity to help heal the food system and provide some relief to folks. But we're at square one. We, we really don't have a product at all whatsoever right now, and we're going to be building it out. And I'm like, well, I would like to rebuild out Harvest Rx on a bigger scale. And so I talked to them for about 15 minutes. And they offered me the job. Sometimes you got to be in the right place. And then I started work there about four months ago. And now we are set to have a nationwide version of Harvest Rx come out that will not just deliver produce to folks in need, which is now people who are struggling with the effects of COVID, frontline workers, folks with diabetes, hypertension. We have a program coming out with some folks in Boston that I can't name yet, but I'm sure you can imagine for childhood obesity and childhood nutrition. And um, I'm really excited to partner with Karen Akunowicz, the chef of Fox and Knife in Boston, to execute on that program. But, you know, it just it came really full circle.
2: I'm curious where you see the opportunities for doing the type of work that you're doing for others who might be listening. Because I feel like there is a huge opportunity to reinvent the food system right this very minute for restaurants, for people at home, that there's actually no time like the present because of the disruption, because of the technology, and because of collective will.
1: So what I would say is, I did not know when I was a kid that certain things were jobs. I did not know that local politicians get paid. Do you know you can make almost $140,000 as a local politician?
2: I had no idea. I mean, really had no idea. I thought the public servant thing meant you kind of made less than teachers.
1: No, girl. You get paid. You get paid good. So my thing is like, one, if there's one thing you can do, start looking for ways that you can run for local office. There are national issues and we oftentimes as Americans tend to think globally about things or nationally about things. Start local right now. Start in your very own backyard and I promise you, you can do this. Look at opportunities to run for local office. Those are the folks who really make decisions about how the state spends money and there's a lot of money going around right now in both VC capital, local funding, government funding for essentially better connecting the food system because they saw how it fell apart. I also would say, don't think you have to be a nonprofit to do mission-driven work. I think this is a business problem, truly, and that we need to put in place some self-sufficient business opportunities that will continue to remain when the will of philanthropists or the government changes. We need things that stay consistent.
2: That makes so much sense because I think there's a, a flood of philanthropic dollars, which I don't know when that will stop. But, you know, these are problems that are greater than sort of private solutions. Yeah. I
1: talk about micro advocacy a lot, which is within your small world, you know, your town, your state, what type of micro advocacy can you do and who can be a micro advocate for you as a chef, as a restaurateur, as a service provider to say, Why is the hospital getting all their food from an outside commissary four states away and it's sodium-laden, sugar-laden, and tastes terrible when I'm a chef in your backyard and I can do it for you at the same price? 70% of what you're going to give to me is going to go back into our local economy. That's going to improve population health. Population health is a key word for folks in the hospital because that is how they get paid and that's how they don't get dinged by the insurance company. You want to be focused on population health within ten miles of a hospital, and there is there's a ton of investment for that. And I do think it's the time that chefs take up that cause and say, "We are the culinarians right here. We're your neighbor." And if you invest in us, more of that money will stay right here.
2: When I was researching your background, and obviously I knew about the highlights, but what I hadn't quite realized was the number of jobs that you'd had, the amount of travel, because you spent some time in Florida, you spent some time in sort of the D.C. Baltimore area, you spent time in New York, now you're upstate. What's the key to that amount of flexibility, and does any of that come with a downside? Yeah, I think
1: the flexibility really came from me early on thinking I was only going to make it to 23 years old. Everything after 23 is extra to me. And so I didn't have a plan, quite honestly. I thought, well, I'll probably make it out of college. And then I don't know what's going to happen to me. Will I be able to get a job? Will all the things that my mom was afraid of happen to me? Will I die young for a number of reasons? I just, I couldn't imagine myself being more than 23. So I didn't have a plan. So with that mentality came, I'll just go where I'm wanted. And that is truly how I've gotten a lot of different jobs, a lot of different opportunities to travel, is I've said yes to things, mostly because I didn't have a plan for the rest of my life. I also knew that my dad, who worked every single day in the same factory on the same helicopter blade for 40 years, hated it. And so I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I was setting myself up to say, okay, I'm going to lock it in to this job, and this is going to be me for the next 40 years. I knew I didn't want that. Because whatever stability you get for that, I felt like I would be trading too much of myself for. And so it just wasn't the choice that I personally made. And so with all of these, I just sort of said yes to what the next thing was. And one built on the other. I was working for a restaurant in New York City called Almond with Chef Jason Wiener, who I still love to this day. And he was, you know, sort of politically tied because of who his brother was. And we were doing a lot of political stuff i got very interested in political dining because i just thought it was like the hottest tea in town is like if you're doing chelsea clinton's engagement party like and everybody's there they're talking about what the country's going to be like and i thought that was cool and you're just like this little waiter or little line cook and they they just talk right in front of you cuz they don't care they don't think you're going to know anything that they're saying and so I got into that and then I got pulled down to Florida. I was anchored at the Tampa Museum of Art through this other group, Me with Marianne Ferentz, who is like a really special, important figure in Florida and in James Beard history also. And we got the contract to do Mitt Romney's RNC in 2012. And so I worked for Mitt Romney for two years through both Marianne and this catering company that we brought in from Orlando Puffin stuff. And we did that. And then from that, I had like some political clout now and I had a really high security clearance. So then I moved up to DC and Bill Homan was like, oh, you have a special security clearance. That's awesome, you're in. And I just, I had like a lot of good experience and I just sort of allowed myself to float from one place to the next. I think what is hard is jobs will come and go there will always be something else there is always something else if you try to force it it's harder if you have your mind set on one thing it's harder if you have your mind set on the opportunity of like being open to the world it's a little bit easier and I know not everybody can do that but it's there it is an option
2: and was there any like emotional wrangling you had to do to tell yourself it was going to be okay or is just like that's the way your mind works like it's all going to be okay
1: So I tend to get really excited at the upfront of something and then I get there and you have a moment where you're in Tampa, Florida and you're like, what am I doing? I worked so hard to get to New York City and now I'm like in Tampa, Florida working for the RNC, like slinging crab cakes every day. Yeah, like I cried quite a few times (laughs) while I was there. But you can always come home. You can always come back. I talked to my therapist, Michael, who I love, the other day, and I I also strongly suggest therapy for literally every single person. And I was crying, and he's like, why are you crying? Did something happen? And I'm like, I just miss New York City so bad. And he's like, okay, well, you can come back. It's okay. Like, you can always come back to the place that you consider home, even if your travel
2: takes you far away. I could talk to you forever, but I'm just going to bring up the last two questions that I ask each guest on Speaking Broadly. And one is Is there something in your kitchen that transforms your cooking that more people need to know about?
1: Yes. So, uh, having worked in kitchens and understanding seasoning and flavoring and whatnot, There are still some times when you want to just make a dish and you don't want to think about it too much and you kind of want it to feel like maybe somebody else made it. And for me, using the Spiceology blends, in particular Greek Freak, is that experience for me. I feel like even though I've had to physically cook the dish, the way that their blends shake out and the collaborations that they have, it allows you to really bring one of those chefs that you love home with you. So like Isaac Tubes has a collaboration on there and like, Christine, the barbecue queen has one on there. And it's just like a fun thing where you get to like have this thing in your pantry when you want it and pull it out when you want to invite a friend over.
2: That's so great. So who's the founder of Spiceology? And then you should tell people who Isaac Toops is. Oh yeah,
1: so the founder of Spiceology is this guy, Chip. And he actually remains quite a mystery to me because my connection to Spiceology is through chef Matt Broussard, who is at a cook named Matt. A lot of folks maybe know him from Instagram or TikTok. He's an incredible human being and he is their sort of like chef liaison. And so he was my connection to Spiceology initially. And then Isaac Tubes, of course, is a chef in New Orleans. He is like the original Creole king. And I love him, his wife, Amanda, their kids are incredible. And one thing I love most about Isaac Tubes is he got this collaboration, which was a really, he deserves it. His ability to build flavor and then put it in a bottle is really bar none. But when COVID hit, he immediately transitioned his restaurant into being a family kitchen for all of the folks who are out of work in New Orleans from the restaurant industry. And they continue to do family meal to this day. It's part what he has in house that he can make work, part donations from the community. But this is a guy who is like Southern hospitality, actually, and like real fun.
2: I always need the thing that's the shortcut for my cooking because I prefer eating out. I got to say. So the last question is, is there a woman in the hospitality industry who you think is incredible, who more people need to know about? You actually are at the center of so many incredible women. I have to imagine it'd be hard for you to pick one, but that's what I'm going to ask you to do.
1: I know. How do I pick one, right? But there's one person who I've actually never met in person, but that I really admire and I find just fascinating as a human, and her name is Tabitha Brown. You can find her at I am Tabitha Brown. She is a home cook and culinarian who built a following on TikTok and Instagram, basically inviting you into her home. She has like an ASMR voice. She is just a beautiful soul, and she shows you how to make plant-based dishes. But she never tells you that you're on a vegan cooking channel. So she's got a lot of catchphrases, like she puts garlic powder on everything. And when you ask her how much, she says that's your business. And I just think it's funny. You know, she just makes things so approachable. And I think, especially in the plant-based industry and in the plant-based side of food right now. There's a lot of gatekeeping. There's a lot of like feeling like it's very fancy or it's potentially very expensive. And Tabitha Brown is here to tell you, like you can do this in your home today. Here's how I do it. Like Welcome to my table. Uh, Huffington Post called her America's mom. Again, I've never met her in person, but the way she comes through the screen to me is just really comforting and and really makes me excited about what the future of culinary will be like.
2: Well, I feel so much better knowing that you are in some way involved in the future of culinary with all of the work that you Done and your singular V approach to everything. I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me. Time passes quickly when you're talking to someone as compelling as you, V. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you, all of you who are listening. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Speaking Broadly. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast.